So hear now the very word of God as it is given to us in the Gospel of Luke, reading from the sixth chapter, verses 43 through 45. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. For each tree is known by its own fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good, and the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. And may the Lord truly bless this very poignant, very fundamental teaching to our understanding this morning. Let's pray and ask him to do just that. Lord, we know that there's nothing in your word that's not important, that is not significant. However, every now and then we run across passages that really define what um, it means to be a Christian, defines our relationship with you and, and, and helps us understand that relationship and then helps us understand the world in which we live. And so, Lord, as we make our way through this text, we just ask your blessing your illumination, so that we might understand it, so that we might apply it, so that we might use kingdom discernment when we are considering these great principles and doctrines. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Many years ago when Kay and I first moved to South Florida, we rented a house um, just north of, of Holiday Park. There's a little neighborhood between Sunrise and 13th Street. And we rented a house in there for the first year we were here. And when we first took a look at the house, we looked at the backyard, and there was this gorgeous orange tree. And in my memory, there was more orange on it than there was green. It was absolutely loaded with oranges, and oranges were scattered on the ground all around it. And when we got serious about renting it, we looked at each other and said, we're never going to have to buy orange juice again. I mean, we just got an orange juice factory in our backyard. Now, the man who rented us the house was honest. He said, oh, oh, that's a Florida orange tree. Now, we're just down from Tennessee. We had no idea what that meant. As far as I, we were concerned, an orange tree is an orange tree. We didn't realize that every edible orange in Florida has been grafted onto a, a nematode-resistant Florida orange tree root, but that a Florida orange tree was horribly bitter. And you can imagine our disgust or our dismay, our disappointment when we rented the house and rushed out there to get our first bite of a Florida orange, bit into it, and oh my goodness, you couldn't, you had to spit it out. It's not even sour. I mean, like a lemon, you can squeeze in your tea, but a native Florida orange tree bears fruit that is horribly bitter, good for nothing, actually. Now, it's really not the fault of the fruit, if, if you want to look at it that way, because it is just simply fruit that is born according to the nature of the tree. 
Now, the tree was actually quite healthy, and the oranges were plump and beautiful looking. I mean, it, 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 it looked like they should have tasted wonderful, but the, the, the fact of the matter is, is that the tree itself was of such a nature that the fruit it produced was bitter to the taste. Now, Jesus is going to share an analogy with us in our text this morning, very similar to this. But let let, let me point out two things just about this uh, opening thoughts. First of all, it wouldn't matter what I did to the tree. I I could fertilize it. I could cultivate it. I could spray it for bugs. I could nurture it and baby it all that I wanted to. No matter what I do to that tree, it's always going to bear bitter fruit. By the same token, there's nothing I can do to to the fruit that's going to make any difference to the tree. I mean, I can't inject it with sugar or do whatever I thought I might be able to do to adjust the fruit so that it would determine or make a difference in the nature of the tree. The nature of the tree was such that the fruit is simply bitter and there's nothing that anyone can do about it. And that is very close to what Jesus is teaching us this morning, but he's not talking about fruit. Brothers and sisters, he's talking about souls. He's talking about people, and he's talking about eternal destiny, and he's talking about judgment, and he's talking about fundamental things as far as our relationship with God is concerned, and he's spelling it out that there is a different and that people will act according to the nature of their souls. So therefore, we're going to get right down to the very very core of of the idea of doctrines such as regeneration and justification, the very foundations of Christianity. Now, I know it's been three weeks or since we talked about this last, but as I was making our way through Luke, then now we've got to this point, I'd said on various occasions that the context is ganging up on us. Because if I did justice to the context of what Luke has been doing, I'm not going to have any time to actually look at the text itself. So I'm just going to have to take a couple of jabs and sort of establish just to a degree where we are and and, and then move on into this text. Luke, of course, is introducing us to the kingdom of heaven. That's one of the major themes of his book. And he has introduced us to the king of that, Jesus the Messiah. Now we've seen the foundations of the kingdom and the appointment of the apostles. And in this Sermon on the Mount, he is sharing with us the the ethical standards of the kingdom. Ethical standards that make no sense whatsoever to those outside of the kingdom. Standards like to 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 love your enemies, to do good to those who hate you, to to bless those who curse you, to pray for those who are actively abusing you. And then he went beyond that and he says, not only do I want you to do those things, I want you to do it with the right motives, the right heart. And again, these are things that even though they're emulated by the culture make absolutely no sense. There's got to be something in it for me. It can't just be the motives of the kingdom. Well, then the very last message that I brought you, we looked at three, oh, you can call them parables, proverbs, or stories, three examples of things that we need to be careful of and and the difference between the world that we live in 
and the, the, the kingdom that he is describing. And, and he said basically through three things. First of all, if a blind person leads a blind person, they're going to both fall into a pit. Talking about false teachers who lead people astray. And then he talked about a, a, a servant is no better than his master. And so therefore, the, 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 the right relationship of a disciple is to reflect perfectly the teaching of the master. It's when you go off on your own and start teaching false doctrines that trouble begins. And, and then he told that story about that man who had a plank in his eye who was trying to pick out a piece of dust out of his neighbor's eye. And we talked about that and we asked ourselves, why the hyperbole? Why the degree of hyperbole? I mean, why not just a big speck? Why a plank or a log sticking out of the eye? And we came to the conclusion that Jesus is talking about that sin of pride or arrogance, that puffed upness, that me first, that kind of self-determination that false teachers bring upon themselves to, to completely ignore the teachings of Scripture and to bring a different doctrine into the world. Well, that's what he's going to continue with now in, in, in this passage. And, and so let's take a look at, at verse 43 because I'm going to kind of stop at the first word and connect these two. Notice what it says, for no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Very straightforward, in proverbial form, if you will. But that first word, for, in the Greek language, quite often you'll find that it is not translated because it doesn't have any impact on the sentence. That's not the case here. This is extremely important for the sentence because he is referring now to evil Trees that bear evil fruit. When we get down to the 45th verse, we're going to see that he's talking about people and teachers. And the four means that the three stories he just told of the blind leading the blind, the disciple who is not reflecting his master, and the guy with the, the log in his eye who is so puffed up and arrogant that uh, they are looking for a speck in someone else's eye, they actually are the evil tree that he's getting ready to talk about. He ties the two together. All right, so we're going to see later on that there is a, a clear discussion about false teaching and false prophecy and, and, and just false understanding of the relationship that we have with God. With that said, now let's take a look at this analogy. It's very simple. For no good tree bears bad fruit, nor again does a bad tree bear good fruit. Trees bear fruit according to their nature. And I just explained about the Florida orange. It wasn't doing anything wrong. It was just simply bearing fruit according to its nature. And so therefore, you're going to have a, a, a fruit, a tree that bears fruit according to its nature. Now, again, the reason I chose that analogy of the, of the Florida orange is because Jesus isn't necessarily talking about a... A, a good tree, a healthy tree, a well-watered tree, a tree in good soil, as opposed to the same kind of tree in bad soil that's not being watered, that is, is diseased in some way. That, that, that's not the distinction that he has here. He's talking about two different kinds of trees. Both of them may be completely healthy and producing fruit. One tree is going to bear Florida oranges that are bitter, and the other tree is going to bear navel oranges that are delicious and sweet. They are simply bearing fruit according to their nature. Now I want you to see something and start paying attention because this is going to get 
and pretty poignant. Jesus is telling us that there are exactly two kinds of trees. There are good trees and there are bad trees. We're going to talk later on about what actually makes a good tree good. But there are good trees and bad trees. Jesus is, is giving us an either-or situation. You've heard the old adage, haven't you, that there are basically two kinds of people in the world? Those who divide the world into two kinds of people and those who don't? Well, Jesus is one who does. Jesus is the one who divides the world into two kinds of people. In his Olivet Discourse, when he talks about the judgment at the end of time, he says that there are sheep and there are goats. And the sheep and the goat is going to determine about how they are judged. There are no sheeps on their way to being goats. There's no goats on their way to being sheep. There are exactly two kinds of people as far as the spiritual condition of their soul is concerned. There are good and there is evil. And we'll talk about what makes a person good because we all start out evil. Now, the good tree is always going to bear good fruit. The evil tree will always bear evil tree, evil fruit. He goes on and, and, and he, he kind of brings this out in a little bit more of a, of a principle. Notice what he says in the beginning of verse 44, for each tree is known by its own fruit. Now, let's make sure once again that we're very clear about what Jesus is saying. And the reason I'm being very de- deterministic about this or very, or very uh, um, um, processing through this is that it has been so badly twisted, first by liberal theology and now by evangelicals as well, what the meaning of this is. Jesus is saying that a tree will be known by its fruit. He is not saying that a tree is determined by its fruit. I mean, that's not rocket science, that the fruit is born according to the nature of the tree. And no matter what you do to the fruit, it is not going to change the nature of the tree. Now, a child can understand that, but apparently liberal theology can't because it's constantly trying to take the fruit and make it into a good tree. That which is evil, if I just teach it, if I just expose it to the right kind of doctrine, if I just try to curve it and make it into this direction, then I can turn the evil heart into a good heart. Jesus says that's impossible. That that doesn't work. Either the heart is good or the heart is evil, one way or, or the other. So there's a principle here. There's a principle that we really need to make sure that we understand, and it is simply this. The tree, the nature of the tree, determines the nature of the fruit. But the fruit identifies the nature of the tree. In other words, I can take a blind tasting. I can put a blindfold on and you can give me a Florida orange and a navel orange and I can taste them and I can tell you immediately which tree, which orange came from. It's a lot easier to do that than it is to discern whether someone is saved or not. And we'll talk about that a little bit later on. That's where kingdom discernment comes in. But it's the nature, it's the fruit that identifies the tree and not determines the tree. You realize that if the fruit could determine the tree, that's works-based salvation. That means that my works can make the tree good. So what Jesus is talking about here is not who does good or who acts good or who thinks good. He's talking about who is good. 
And we'll talk about how that is possible at all. But he's talking about those who are inherently good and the nature of that goodness will indeed flow from that good heart when we get down to the 45th verse. So therefore, there's a radical change that occurs in the heart when Salvation comes. We're going to talk about that, the idea of regeneration, the idea of justification. We are getting down to the very core doctrines of what it means to be reformed, what it means to be a Christian. Regeneration and justification. Well, anyway, let's go ahead and we'll come to that when we get there. Notice the, the continuation of that 44th verse. Jesus gives us an illustration. For each tree is known by its fruit. For figs are not gathered from thorn bushes, nor are grapes picked from a bramble bush. And he uses two staples that were readily identifiable by the agrarian society that he's speaking to. Everyone knew what a fig was because they ate figs all the time. Now, there were different kinds of fig trees. There were different varieties. They produced fruit at different times in the year, and there were slight differences between them. But everyone knew what a fig looked like and tasted like, and they also knew where a fig came from. The same was true with grapes. Not only was it a staple for them, but it was also a major part of their economy. They ate them when they harvested them. They would crush the, the juice out of it and ferment it to make wine. And they would dry them and in, in, in make raisin cakes. And so therefore, they understood exactly what a grape was. And they knew, every child knew, that you can't get a fig from a thorn bush, and, and, and you can't get a grape from a bramble bush. I, I mean, it, it, you, you don't have to be really brilliant to understand that. And, and he uses two um, almost synonymous uh, um, um, words here, the thorn bush and the bramble bush. And once again, everyone knew what that was. And if you've been in round farming, you, you know up in the south we used to call them um, briar patches. And a briar patch could form in your field. And after a couple of seasons, if you don't do something about it, there's going to take over. And, and, and those briars and thorn bushes, they don't produce anything that you can eat. They rip the flesh. They rip your clothes. They rip the flesh of your animals who are plowing the fields, who can get infected. So they're just simply um, difficult things. And you don't, you don't get anything good out of a thorn bush or a bramble bush. Even though thorn bushes can have berries that might look a little bit like a grape, as soon as you taste it, you're going to know the difference, and some of those berries are poisonous. Now, once again, here's the simplistic presentation that Jesus is making. Say that you bring me two bowls. You bring me a bowl of figs, and you bring me a bowl of raisins. And, and I look at those, and I say, boy, I really like figs. I, I, I really like raisins. But I've got a backyard full of thorn bushes and, and briar, bramble bushes. Now, sorry, excuse me for using this word, but it would be idiotic for me to say, hey, you know something, I'm going to go to work right now. And I think if I, if I fertilize those thorn bushes just right, and maybe if I spray them with this particular kind of spray, I can start getting figs and raisins out of my thorn bushes. Jesus' point is that never happens. It's an impossibility. You get figs out of a fig bush, and you get grapes out of a grapevine. And, and, and it's idiotic to think 
that you're going to be able to change the nature of the tree by working on the fruit. And yet so much of modern Christendom is trying to engage in just that. Again, this is not so much about who does good, who thinks good, who acts good. It's about who is good. Now, there's an association that I think that I'm going to share two associations with you this morning, one that I know Luke isn't making that I make, and one that I, I, I kind of think probably that is being made here. And that's the idea of thorn bushes and, 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 and bramble bushes, or as Matthew says, thistles. Because if you go back to Genesis, you go back to Adam and Eve in the garden, when they're in the garden except for the, fruit, the trees that they're not supposed to touch, there's, every tree bears beautiful and wonderful fruit. All you had to do is just walk up and, and, and take it. There, there was no fighting, no, no trouble with the earth. Well, of course, we know as part of the curse, God told Adam that the, the, the ground would fight him back. This is what he says. Cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and, thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you, and you shall eat the plants of the field. In other words, the thorns and thistles that we're now talking about are associated with the fall, with the curse of the fall. They didn't come until after the fall occurred. So when we talk about the thistle or the thorn bush not producing figs, Jesus is making it very clear. He's talking about people's souls And he's talking about the fact that a soul that is wicked is always going to produce wicked fruit. The big question that we have before us is, again, how does that which is wicked become good? And and after that which is wicked becomes good, is there even the possibility that it can produce evil fruit? It's really at the core of what he is talking about here. So he gives that, us that, that, that sort of amazing um, uh, uh, illustration. And then he goes on and now he's going to apply it. Now he's going to tell us what he's really talking about because fruit's just the analogy. He's really talking about the human soul. So let's look at verse 45. The good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good. And the evil person out of his evil treasure produces evil. For out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. Boy, he really spells it out in that 45th verse. So let's kind of take a look at the language and make sure that we understand what he is saying. First of all, notice once again, he speaks of a good person. Now, we're going to ask ourselves, and I'm going to, I promise you I'm going to answer it. I've told you several times I'm going to do this, but I promise I am. We're going to ask ourselves and answer what it is that makes that which is wicked good. How can that which is fallen, which is a thorn bush in its soul, how can that be called good and therefore bring forth good fruit? But notice, notice the way he describes this. He says, out of the good treasure... Of his heart. That word treasure is a very interesting one. In Greek, it's the word thesaros. And and maybe you can just pick up the English word thesaurus in there. That's where we get it. 
And a thesaurus, if you will, is a treasure trove of human knowledge. It's a a book with synonyms and antonyms in them and and a storehouse of of human language, of, of something that is precious to us, which is language and the knowledge that we have. So it's a treasure trove or a storehouse of that. And so he says that out of a good storehouse, you get good things. Out of a bad storehouse, you get bad things. Now, what he's saying is very similar to the nature of the tree producing the kind of fruit that it produces. But now what he is saying is he's using a slightly different analogy. And he's saying whatever the storehouse stores is what you're going to get out of it. I mean, if you want grain and you're looking for grain and that's what you're after, well, you would go to a place where grain was stored, like a silo in a farmer's uh, 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 barnyard. And, and that's where you would expect to find the grain that you're looking for. The last thing on earth that you would do was go to a silo and try to find shoes, Because you're not going to find them there because it's a different kind of a storehouse. What you would do is you would go to a shoe warehouse, a place where a lot of shoes are, so you could look at the shoes and buy them. By the same token, you wouldn't go looking for sacks of grain in a place where there were shoes. So, therefore, he's talking about the thesaros is a treasure trove of either good or evil. Now, he describes what the thesaros actually is when he says... It is the heart, the cardia. And, 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 and he's not talking about the organ that's beating in our chest, brothers and sisters. This is where it really gets, it gets very pointed. He's talking about your soul. He's talking about that part of you that lives forever. He's talking about that part of you that will ultimately be judged by God. Whether it is a goat or whether it is a sheep, that's what the heart is. The essence of who you are, the essence of your soul, that which will live forever. Out of the abundance of the thesaros, the treasure trove of your soul, will either come good things, if indeed you are overflowing that which is good, or evil things, if the soul is evil. I mean, it's straightforward. You can't get any clearer than this. Now, the next word that we want to look at is that that word abundance. When he goes at the end of it and says, for out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. That word abundance speaks of being filled to the brim and overflowing. Having more of whatever it is so that it's almost like it's producing it. The storehouse is so full of grain that the grain is just pouring out the tops of the silos. Well, if the heart is good and it is filled with good things, then good is what's going to flow out of the heart. If the heart is evil, again, Jesus saying there are exactly two kinds of hearts, good and evil, and if the heart is evil, what's going to flow out of that heart are evil things. And then he brings it all together when he tells us how we determine the nature of that heart. For he says, out of the abundance of the heart, his mouth speaks. It's words. 
Now, this takes us right back to the idea of the blind leading the blind into a pit and the man who is not following the, or not reflecting the teaching of his master and the one with a log in his eye who is now the evil fruit bearing evil, uh, I mean, the evil tree bearing evil fruit. What is going to determine this are the words. And so, so he's talking about false teachers. He's talking about false doctrines and, and false prophets and false preachers and false understandings. And, 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 and things that get completely clogged, even for, for, for very fundamental Christians that, that lose their discernment because they're not looking at the right signs of what comes out of the heart and not paying close attention to the words that reveal the nature of the heart that is inside of it. So basically, Jesus is telling us that there are two kinds of teachers, two kinds of people, two kinds of trees. Two kinds of storehouses. There's two kinds of teachers. There are good teachers. And there are evil teachers. Now the problem is, is you can't always tell the difference between them. When Matthew deals with this. And, and I don't always want to project Matthew on Luke. Because they're not exactly the same. But he does give us insight. When Matthew deals with this in the seventh chapter of his discussion of the Sermon on the Mount, he does it this way. He says, Beware of false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. You will recognize them by their fruits, are grapes gathered from thorn bushes or figs from thistles. In other words, he's, he's saying from the outside, that orange just looks amazing. That orange tree looks like it is so full of oranges, you're going to have orange juice for the rest of your life. But you take one bite and you're going to know because of the fruit, the nature of the tree. It's the words. It's what is said. It's the testimony. It's the life. It's what comes out of the heart that condemns that false teacher. So the question that I'm going to answer now is what makes one teacher evil? And one teacher good. What makes one soul evil and one soul good? What is it that can happen to a fallen soul that makes that soul good? Well, Jesus makes it very clear. He'll make it very clear and later on in Luke when he says this, talking in his humanity, he says, Why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. So therefore, brothers and sisters, what makes a heart good and the only thing that makes a heart good is when God is in the heart. That's the only thing that changes. It is all the sovereign activity and domain of God alone. God is the one who makes good because God and God alone is good. If God is in the heart, the heart is good. If he's not in the heart, the heart has fallen and it's evil. And I don't care how you dress it up or how you fertilize it or how you cultivate it or how good looking you make it look. If it comes from a diseased heart, it's diseased. And kingdom discernment is to be able to tell the difference in that. Now, you may not recognize this, but where Jesus has led us is directly to the question, what makes that which is evil Good. And it brings us face to face with two of the core, core doctrines of Christianity. Justification and regeneration. 
Both of these are important. Quite often they're, they're wrapped together in, in, into the same event, but there is a nuance of difference, and we need to recognize what that nuance of difference is. Justification actually is just what it says. It's the process of becoming justified. It's a forensic word, usually talking about sort of a courtroom session. In, in other words, someone is justified when they are declared, key word, declared, when they are declared innocent, when they are no longer being held, the, what they're accused of is not being held against them. They're exonerated. They are declared innocent. They are justified. Now, our justification of, of sinful individuals before a holy God, our justification occurred when Jesus Christ went to the cross and died with our sins upon him because he was our sacrificial substitutionary atonement. He paid for those sins. He wiped them away. We were justified. And then he declares us righteous with his own righteousness. That's the process of justification. Now, that occurred, of course, on the cross, but actually, if you want to get right down to it, it occurred before time began. When God wrote your name into the book of life, he decreed that you would be justified, knowing that you would sin against him, and knowing that the only one who could resolve that sin would be his own son on the cross, and that's why he brought him about. That justification has been God's plan since Genesis 3.15, even before then. Regeneration is the process whereby the transformation occurs in an individual who is sinful. Regeneration is when the Holy Spirit changes the heart. When, when, when he takes away the heart of stone and puts the, the heart of flesh in, the heart that is prepared for him, the heart that is occupied by him, a new soul, a new being, a new creation. It is what Jesus said to Nicodemus, you must be born again. It's not just fixing what's wrong with you. It's a complete and total remake. You need a new heart. You need a new soul. And so therefore, the regeneration is entirely the work of the Holy Spirit who comes upon you and regenerates you and changes you so that you can indeed believe and follow the lead of our Lord Jesus Christ. Put them together and you've got what happens that makes the evil fruit good. Let me see if I can use another analogy I told you. I told you that I was going to make an association that I don't want you to think that I'm saying Luke made this association. Uh, um, I, it's just an association I make in my mind, but it helps me to understand a little bit more about the idea of regeneration and justification and to put it in its proper perspective. Later on in Luke, um, he is going to use the same word for bramble bush again. And, and the context that he's going to use that word is talking about the burning bush. He's going to put it to say it like this. Moses showed in the passage about the bramble bush. Okay. Well, that got my mind thinking. So I went back to the, the burning bush. Now, it's been years since we studied that, but when we studied the holiness of God, we talked about the fact that the burning bush was a theophany, a manifestation of the presence of God in some kind of a physical form. But what was so extraordinary about that is that the bush was on fire, but the bush didn't burn up. And the reason the bush didn't burn up is because God was in the bush, but he wasn't of the bush. 
You see, a bush that is burning produces the fuel for the fire. Well, God didn't need the fuel. He wasn't, in, he wasn't of the bush, even though he was in the bush. And because he was in the bush, God made the bush holy. Not only the bush holy, he made everything around the bush holy. To where when Moses approached, he says, stop, take the sandals off your feet. Because the very ground upon which you walk is holy ground. Why was it holy? Because God was there. What happened when the Spirit of God left? that bush and left that ground, it returned to exactly what is before, just nothing but an old bramble bush. In other words, there was no intrinsic holiness or value in the ground or in the bush. God is the one who made it holy. Now, when regeneration occurs, God takes up residence literally in that redeemed heart, in that redeemed self. Now, not in some new agey sense. It's not the spark of the divine who lives in us. God is in us, but he's not of us. You see, he is separate from his creation. His ways are not our ways. His thoughts are not our thoughts. And yet, he has established a regenerated, born-again heart. And he says that I take up occupancy in that heart. Now... If he was ever to leave us, he never will. He's promised. He's changed that heart. It's born again. It's regenerated. We're new creations in Christ. Sin has no control over us anymore. We have that redeemed self. But if he were to leave us, if he were to leave as he left Saul, as David feared he would lead him, then we would revert back to the same old bramble bushes that we were. Now, he gives us a promise that that is never going to happen. But we are holy because God is holy and he dwells in us. Now, here's the point, brothers and sisters. It is impossible. It is impossible for that which God occupies and makes holy to continue to bear evil fruit. It's an impossibility. It can't happen. If you say it happens, you are denigrating, defiling the very presence of the Holy Spirit. You're saying he's ineffective. And so therefore, the entire modern concept of carnal Christianity just gets trampled on and thrown out the window. It can't be. It's an impossibility. If God changes your heart, if the tree is different, it will bear good fruit. Because the tree has changed. It's impossible. For that tree to continue to bear evil fruit. To continue on doing the things that it always had done. To to, to show no sign whatsoever that salvation has occurred in that heart. So let's step back from this just a moment. Let me see first of all, before I say some of the things I'm going to say. Let me see if, I can, if we can agree on something. You may disagree on some of the things I'm going to say. But let's agree on one thing. Let's agree on what Jesus has just told us. Jesus has just told us that a dramatic, life-changing occurrence occurs when a heart is redeemed. Now, he didn't put it in those exact words. But it's the only way that which is evil becomes good. It becomes good because God abides in the heart and there's a redeemed self. And so therefore, if we can agree that there are exactly two kinds of souls that exist on this planet, there are redeemed souls, regenerated souls, and there are unredeemed, unregenerate souls. 
I know that some people are unregenerate, headed towards regeneration. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about if, if, if the world was to end today, there are sheep and there are goats. And there's going to be a judgment based on the nature of the soul. It has nothing to do with acting good, thinking good, trying to be good. It has to do with who has the good soul that has got in that soul. That's what makes the difference. Can we agree on that? That is what is being taught here. You you just can't see past it. But it becomes more complicated from there. Because yes, I I have a redeemed soul. It it is. I'm regenerated. I I know it. And and I'll explain some of the the signs that, that help me know that. But I have this redeemed soul, this regenerated soul, this soul that God has born again and placed inside of me. But I've got this worldly, fleshly body that continues to work against it. Now, this body will never dominate my redeemed soul, ever. Because I'm a new creation in Christ. I will never be a slave to my sin again. Because I have a redeemed self. And I have a regenerated heart. And I have been justified. And therefore out of the goodness of that heart. You're going to see good things happen. But I'm still going to fight this old man. This old man that keeps raising his ugly head. And, and trying to walk with the world. And to fight against me. And cause me to doubt. And cause me to fear. And cause me to disobey the Lord. Always laying traps for me. Trying to keep me from accomplishing what I'm going to, what God wants me to accomplish. And so therefore, sometimes I go through valleys. Sometimes I, I go through dark areas in my life. As we all do. There, there, there's no Christian that doesn't know this. So we realize that we're on a process of sanctification, a process that starts when we're saved and a process that goes on throughout the rest of our lives. Now, here's, here, here's the big question we have to, to deal with now. I know I've given you several big questions, but this is heavy stuff. Okay, how do you tell the difference? How do you tell the difference? Whether someone needs to be saved or whether someone just needs to be sanctified, whether someone needs to be evangelized, Or where someone needs to be discipled. How do you tell the difference? What are the signs? You you see, it's not that easy. I mean, there's a lot of false teachers out there. And a lot of what they say is good. And boy, they are slick. And they have got many nice things. They throw the words of gospel and everything around that. But yet, if you look at their lives. As you look at their heart. If you look at the words. And you compare them to the words of Jesus carefully. You can tell the difference. You can see that there is actually a difference. But then, how do you tell the difference in your own heart? And what's even more difficult is how do you tell the difference in the hearts of your loved ones? Those who mean something to you. You know, I, I, I know a lot of people, and I'm not just talking about fringe. I'm not talking about temporal. I'm not talking about nominal Christians. I'm talking about solid, believing, reformed people who had agreed with the doctrine that we all agreed on. That there are exactly two kinds of souls in this world. And they'll agree with that until they start to talk about their own children. And then there's three kinds of people in the world. There's the evil tree that bears evil fruit. There's the good tree that bears good fruit. And then there's my good child who just happens to bear evil fruit. And it goes something like this, and I can't tell you how many times I've heard it. Oh, so-and-so, yeah, they're into drugs. Yeah, they're into alcohol. Yeah, they're into sex. Yeah, they're running with the world. Yeah, there is absolutely no fruit in their life, but they love Jesus. 
I say, how, how, how do they love Jesus? I mean, where's the evidence of that love for Jesus? Oh, they walked down the aisle when they were young. Oh, they made a profession of faith. And you should have seen them when they were young. They recited the entire catechism. They were so smart. And they just wanted to be a preacher. So I know, looking backwards, that that means that they love Jesus. But wait a minute. Jesus says, if you love me, you're going to keep my commandments. He says that if you have fruit in your life, that is going to show. He says in Matthew, how can you speak good when you are evil for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks he says right here the good person out of the good treasure of his heart produces good and the evil person out of the evil treasures produces evil how can you say that someone who bears nothing but evil fruit knows Jesus you can't God isn't fooled folks He's not fooled. And so therefore, when we start talking about kingdom discernment, we need to start talking about knowing the difference between people who need to be evangelized and people who need to be discipled. And never, ever, ever try to disciple a pagan, even if that pagan is our own son or daughter, our own wife or husband, our own loved ones, those closest to us. You're doing them no good by giving them a false sense of salvation. They're exactly two kinds of souls in in the world, evil souls and good souls, and good souls have God in them. And if God is in your soul, it's going to show. This has been building up for three weeks, by the way. So you're in for it today. So, how do you know? How can you tell? Is there any fruit that you can definitively point to that helps us understand. Do you realize how important this is? Do you realize eternity hangs on it? Do you realize that? Do you realize that the health of this church and every church hangs on this? Because if you go filling a church full of pagans calling themselves disciples and you don't know the difference, sooner or later those people are going, those pagans are going to end up in leadership in this church. The whole church is going to go astray. This is like vital. This is one of the enemy's favorite tools against the church and against us. And so it is really important that we get this right. How can we know? Well, usually we start to talk about the fruits of the Spirit. And those are marvelous fruits. Don't get me wrong. We, we heard them several times from the students in the, uh, over the last couple of nights talking about the Christian Character Awards. And, and, and in Galatians, we read this. The fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faith, gentleness and self-control those are the fruits of the spirit but they're also fruits that can be duplicated or at least faked at you have an awful lot of pharisees out there that are really good and pious people in fact some of the liberal uh, uh, denominations really take these to heart and they work really hard a lot sometimes harder than reform people do so how can you know definitively well, I'm going to give you five, they're not exhaustive, but I'm going to give you five signs of a regenerated heart that if you don't have any of these signs, you can't say you're saved. Sorry. Sign number one, do you love God? Do you love him? And I don't mean with a sentimental or emotional love. I don't mean the warm fuzzies when you hear the music play. Take the music away. Take the warm fuzzies away. Take anything positive away. In fact, just do this for a second. Don't do it for long because it's a promise of Scripture. But take eternity away. 
If there was nothing between you and your miserable, torturous death except persecution and suffering, would you love God? Would you love Him with all your heart? Would you have a desire to please Him and to do whatever He has laid out for you to do and you just can't wait because you love Him so much that you want Him to be pleased and blessed and glorified and honored by what you do? Is it something that is real? Is it something that is a part of you? Is it something that came upon you that you had nothing to do with? Because if you don't love God... If you don't love Jesus, if you have no desire to follow him, to live according to his commandments, to please him, to accomplish his will, you cannot say that you have an assurance of salvation. Because people who are saved, people who are redeemed, people who are regenerated love God. They're no longer at enmity with him. They, they hate the enemy. They love God. Second sign. Do you love his word? Do you, do you cherish it? Is it a precious possession to you? I, I, I hear way too many times people say, oh, I don't need the word of God. I don't need to read the Bible. I've got Jesus in my heart. Well, wait a minute. Jesus is the Logos. Jesus is the word. He's the living word. He came and he shared it with his disciples. He said that the Holy Spirit is going to bring it to their remembrance. They're going to write it down. This is the revelation that God has given us of who he is and how we should act and our relationships with him. If you love God, you will love his word. You will desire to read it. And if you're you're not a good reader, you will desire to hear it. You will enjoy the exposition of the word. You will base your foundation of what, where you get your authority on the word. You may not be to the point where you understand the inerrancy and the infallibility of the word. I would pray that you get there. But you would have a deep and a loving desire of that word. It would be your guide in faith and practice. If you do not love the word of God, if you have no desire to pick it up, as the statistics in Christendom are abysmal, people go months without even cracking the book. If you never read it, if you don't care what it says, if there's no desire to study it, how can you say you're saved? I'll never forget, before I was saved, watching Kay. And I could never figure it out. Hour after hour after hour, she would peer over that Bible. She would take Bible studies and she would go to the Bible studies and they would have homework. And every single day she would be working out her homework, especially the Old Testament. She had a burning love for the Old Testament. And I would look and I would say, wow, that's very unusual. You know, I mean, I think it's really good. It's got some good moral things in it, some good ethical standards, but it's full of mythology. And why does she spend so much time studying it? The reason she did is because she had a regenerated heart. And now, as soon as my heart was regenerated, I could not wait to, to, to try to catch up and to delve into his word. And it is my intention to spend the rest of my life studying his word because I cherish it. It is precious to me. And if the word of God is not precious to you, you cannot say, I have an assurance of salvation. Because when the Spirit changes the heart, you have a love for the Word of God. Sign number three. Do you love God's people? Do you love His church? 
Once again, I hear it way too often in modern Christendom. People say, oh, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. Bunch of hypocrites. They're not nice to me when I go. So look, you know, I have my Bible. I read it every now and then. I pray. I've got Jesus in my heart. And, you know, I've got my favorite pastor on TV. And I'm not talking about those of you who can't get here. But those that decide that I hate the church and I have no desire for fellowship, for communion of the saints. I have no idea, no desire for corporate worship whatsoever. I have a disdain for the people of God. Well, Jesus told you, go to John 13. After he washes his disciples' feet. A new commandment I give you. You're to love each other as I love you. In other words, he died for those people that you're calling hypocrites and disdaining and not wanting to have anything to do with. Does that mean you have to like everybody? No. I'm sorry. I don't like all of you. I mean, I, 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 I love you. I die for you, but there are personalities that I just struggle with. And, and I always will struggle with them. Paul and Barnabas had to go their separate ways. But I guarantee you, chips were down. They would have died for each other's. And, and, and you never know who you'll die for until the time is there. But I would like to say that I would die for each and every one of you because you're my brothers and sisters. And I love you and your life is important to me. What happens to you is important to me. Your spiritual well-being is important to me. I love to gather in fellowship. I love the koinonia. I love to spend time. I love to take the Lord's Supper together with you. I love fellowships. I love missions trips. I love the people of God. If you don't love the people of God, you cannot say that you have the assurance of salvation. Because Jesus died for those people, folks. He suffered immeasurably for the people that you're saying I don't want anything to do with. Number four. And this I think is one of the most identifiable ones. Are you mortified when you sin? Do all the things that used to bring you pleasure, that you used to enjoy doing, and now that you know Jesus, all of a sudden they hurt you. They devastate you. It's not like just, oh my goodness, I'm going to get caught, I'm going to get in trouble for this. It is, no, I sinned against the God I love. I sinned against my Lord. I, I broke his, trans, his, his commandments, and I am mortified in my heart. Now, I'm not talking about what the devil does after confession and repentance. What I call guilt, he brings that up and throws it in your face and says, you've got to pay for that. That is not what I'm talking about. He's really good at making you feel guilty for the things that Jesus has already forgiven. But when you sin against him, when you make that, that transgression and you fall down on your knees and you cannot wait to repent with godly sorrow and beg him for forgiveness and confess those sins before him, there's a mortification that occurs. Once again, that just throws carnal Christianity right outside the, the window. You cannot have the Holy Spirit in your heart and go on sinning. You make a liar out of God. You make a liar out of the Word. And you totally defile the Holy Spirit saying that He's not effective to change the heart. So therefore, are you mortified? Because if you're not... If you're not destroyed in your heart when, when you sin against God, I don't see how you can say you have the assurance of salvation. And the fifth one, and I'll leave you with this. The fifth one is more subjective as far as all of us are concerned, but certainly not for me. It's entirely objective for me. 
But because it is at least in a sense subjective, it's not something that I'm going to project on anyone else. It's very personal with me. It's something that, that, that I understand, that, 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 that is a verification in my heart. Um, the first four, definitely, those are universal. But listen to this one and, and make associations if you can, but if you can't, that's okay. One of the reasons that I know that I'm redeemed and regenerated is because I believe. And you see, I didn't always believe. And you say, well, silly, faith is the very foundation of Christianity. Yes, and I know that. But you see, there was a time in my life when I did not believe. And, and, and as I said earlier, I would see Kay studying the Bible and I would say, you know, some great ethical standards in there, some good morality we should learn, but really, basically it's just a book full of Hebrew myths. And I didn't believe it as the Word of God. And I didn't believe the things of Scripture. I, 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 I like to think I'm a relatively intelligent person and, and that I have faculties of reason. And, and, and I'm not the kind of person that believes in something that he knows is false. I really want to know the truth truth. And if I had any inkling that Christianity was not the truth, I would not want to believe in it. I would want to go out and search and find the truth. I'm not interested in saying this is what I was raised with. And even though I don't believe in any of it, I want to believe in it. So I'm going to shut my eyes and believe in something that I know is not true. That's not me. I'm not that way. I don't want to believe in anything that is not true. And the fact of the matter is that I do believe. I, I, I know science. Not great, but I know a little bit. I know physics. I know what's possible and what's not possible in the natural world that we live in. And yet, I believe that God made all the universe with a word out of nothing, ex nihilo. I believe with all my heart that he physically parted the waters of the Red Sea and a million and a half people walked through that sea on dry ground to the other side. I believe that for 40 years he sustained them in a piece of land that they could have passed in a couple of days. And during those 40 years he provided water out of rocks and bread out of heaven and quail out of nowhere. I believe that. I believe that he caused the sun to stand still and the Jordan River to stop. I believe that he impregnated a teenage girl with a, 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 an egg that became the son of God himself in human form. I believe in the virgin birth. I believe Jesus walked on water. I believe that he, that he raised the dead, that he calmed the storm. I believe that he was resurrected from the dead. I believe he ascended to heaven. I believe that at this moment he is at the right hand of God Almighty, King of kings and Lord of lords, in complete dominion over this universe. And I believe with all my heart that he will come again. And that I will spend an eternity with him in a place that I cannot even imagine. Now here's, the, here's what I'm saying. At one time in my life, I didn't believe. And because of nothing that I did, all of a sudden I believe. Very similar, I think, to the testimony that C.S. Lewis tells about his conversion. He said he got in the car... To go to the zoo. And when he got in the car to go to the zoo. He did not believe in Jesus as Lord and Savior. When he got to the zoo and got out of the car. He believed in Jesus as Lord and Savior. 
And people ask them, well, what happened in between? Nothing. I don't remember anything. I just believed. I didn't believe when I got into the car. When I got out of the car, I did believe. That's regeneration, folks. That's the sovereign regeneration of a holy God who does the work for us. And there is a demonstrative, identifiable, observable, tangible, quantifiable change that occurs in the heart that has been redeemed. Now, once again, these are not exhaustive. But I, I, I can say with assurance that if either you or your loved one your child, your spouse, someone you care about, people who you want to come to the church, if, if, if they can't say any of those things, then you know that there's no amount of work you're going to be able to do on the fruit that's going to change the tree. The tree has to be changed. And so you say, what do we do then? Where's our hope? You've just driven a nail through my heart about my son or my daughter. Where is my hope? Well, the hope's not in you. The hope's n- n- not in your loved one. Your hope is in the Lord. So use the two great tools that you have. Your prayer and your testimony. The way you live your life and the way you spend your time on your knees praying for God's regeneration. That's the only way the tree gets changed. That's the only way that something that is evil, that can only bear evil fruit, will ever become good if God changes the heart. And so get on your knees and pray. Now, spiritual discernment comes, kingdom discernment comes in the church of Jesus Christ when we recognize those things and we don't fill our churches full of pagans who don't know the Lord and try to make them into people who do. That's the seeker-sensitive model and it has failed at every single turn. But rather, kingdom discernment, brothers and sisters, is simply this. To recognize that there's two kinds of trees in the world. Good trees and evil trees. Good trees will always bear good fruit. Evil trees will always bear evil fruit. Two kinds of people in the world. Regenerate and unregenerate. Kingdom discernment tells us this. To evangelize those who need evangelizing, do not try to disciple them. But to disciple those who need to be discipled. And to have the discernment, the vital critical, crucial kingdom discernment to know the difference. Let's pray. Dear Lord, I know this is heavy stuff. And this is a very heavy passage. And I know that quite often we like to live in the gray areas. We don't, we don't like it when you get into these either or black and white, two different kinds of people in the world. We much prefer the, the gray model. And, of course, most of so-called Christianity is, has imposed that upon their beliefs. But, Lord, help us to have discernment, both in our families, to trust in you, your covenantal faithfulness with our children, with our grandchildren, with our, our spouses, with those we love and those we're concerned with. And also, Lord, as people come into our church that we would have that discernment so that we would evangelize those who need evangelizing and disciple those who need disciple and never mix the two up. Lord, we ask that we would have that kind of discernment both in the leadership and in the people in the pews. 
And then, thank the Lord, we've got a healthy church. We'll give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.